Feels so good. Out here in Mountain, it's a real good morning. I bet these birds got them probably close to a hundred times. Tater, rocking season, boys. What is going on guys? We got another episode coming. This is episode number 43 and today we got Charlie Killmaster on as a guest with us. He knows his stuff about deer. He is the Georgia state deer biologist with the Georgia DNR. So if you've ever wanted to wonder about deer in Georgia, like when the rut is, or you know what's the difference in Georgia compared to everybody everywhere else, Charlie is the guy that you want to talk to for Georgia. Um, we hit on a lot of stuff in this episode. We talk about um, basically the state of the deer herd right now in Georgia. Uh, the restocking that they did in Georgia, I'm sure a lot of folks know about it, but we get the exact details on that from Charlie in this one. And we talk a lot about the rut in here too. And um, this one we kind of did a little different. I, uh, I posted actually yesterday, I believe it was, um, I posted a thing on Facebook and Instagram and all over the place to uh, submit you guys, for you guys to submit questions to ask and the response we got was really great we got several really good questions and um we pretty much got all of them i apologize if we didn't get your question there may be one or two questions that we didn't catch um but we really appreciate everybody reaching out and contacting you know and messaging and commenting on the facebook and the instagram and twitter and all that um it was just a really good, some really good feedback on that and good questions. So we kind of go into it with a main topic and we start talking about stuff. But I throw the questions in like, and they kind of, it was really, it actually lined up really great because questions fed into the topics really well. Um, and I think, I think you guys are going to really like this episode. It was a really great one. Um, so big shout out to charlie man we really are glad that he came on here hope you guys enjoy this episode and before we get started y'all know what to do if you haven't already go to youtube facebook instagram twitter look up strut south tv get on there subscribe like follow comment and if you will take the time on the podcast leave a review give us a rating because when you leave those ratings and reviews on the podcast, it really, really helps promote our podcast to where other people can see it. And it makes it a lot more visible for everybody. So, 
let's get into it. Hope y'all enjoy. And right before we start, just so y'all guys have something to reference it to, that picture, if you came to us from Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, um, that picture on there on the post is Charlie, and he has he's there with a the deer, and they have the deer blindfolded. I'm assuming mainly to make it easier for them to transport or move the deer or whatever, keep the deer calm. Um, but that particular study they were doing um, related to baiting, how you know deer moved and uh, harvest susceptibility related to baiting. So just so you guys knew what that picture was, um, I thought that was pretty cool. And I got the picture after the podcast, so I wasn't able to actually talk to Charlie about the picture and the study. But just so you guys know, that's what that was. And I thought that was pretty cool. So let's get on to the show. All right, everybody. We have Charlie Killmaster. He is the Georgia State deer biologist on here. And um, we've got him on here today. We're going to talk a whole lot of deer stuff with him. So what's going on there, Mr. Charlie? I'll just uh, enjoying this nice weather we're having. Man, I tell you what, it is nice. I know last two or three days this made me want to go out and get in a stand. Yeah, I'm I'm still in fishing mode right now. I I'm not a, I'm not much of a bow hunter these days, so uh, I wait I wait until uh, October November to to get in the deer woods. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is seems like the best time as far as temperature, especially temperature wise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah um well we're gonna go ahead and jump right into the, the rapid fire here and uh, right. you just you just give me like a the quick a quick short answer all right um crunchy or smooth peanut butter depends on my mood <laughs> all right i agree like I like, both i like both too um coffee black or with creamer black all right. Uh, Ford or Chevy? Ford. All right. Favorite biscuit? Oh, uh, sausage, egg, and cheese. Okay. Um, least favorite chore? Long. <laughs> that sounds just like me. <laughs> uh yeah, that um, those are some good ones there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I always I ask the uh, favorite biscuit one on every episode that I do, and uh, that's the one. That's like the one question that I never get a a no to. Basically, like I don't ever hear anybody say they don't like a biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if you were talking about do I like uh, do I like a, a Pillsbury Grands or a or a restaurant biscuit. Hey, that that could have been an answer too. I mean, any any kind of like if you were going to go somewhere and buy any type of biscuit, you know, that's kind of the. I guess that would be the question. But, yeah, yeah. Nah, sausage, egg, and cheese. I, I I do a plain sausage, but if I want to treat myself, I don't want to really make a meal. I'll add the egg and cheese to it. Live <laughs> live a little on the edge, huh? <laughs> yeah yeah well you know i live i live pretty darn close to the striplins in north georgia and uh man they got they got great biscuits there so mm. awesome yeah I, I think we all love biscuits um 
so we're going to just jump right in here. And uh, so I guess kind of you, you're with the Georgia DNR and, uh, and you're the state deer biologist. So I guess kind of explain, you know, kind of what went about you getting into that field and kind of how you, uh, basically how you got to doing what you're doing. Okay. Yeah. So, um, when I uh, started college, I went down to ABAC my first two years down in South Georgia in Tifton. And, um, I was a forestry major and in the transfer program, meaning that I was taking my core classes and, and intending to transfer to the university of Georgia. Uh, and when I finished up down there and came up to Georgia, I took introduction to fish and wildlife. And, uh, I realized that the wildlife stuff was a whole lot more fun than the forestry stuff. So I, I quickly switched my major. I still didn't know that I necessarily wanted to work with deer. I, I kind of dabbled around. I did a, an internship with wood storks. I was kind of interested in the ornithology route as well. And then uh, towards the tail end of my undergraduate uh, years in college, I started, I went to work at the U, UGA deer pens and uh, they've got a captive research facility with a bunch of deer. They do various types of projects out there. And that's where I really kind of knew that I was going to be a deer biologist. Once I, I started working, I like, put my hands on a, on a live sedated deer. Um, it really intrigued me. So um, I, I went, I finished college, went to, went to work as a naturalist on a state park and uh, did not really enjoy working with kids all that much. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, about, uh, I don't know, I, I was only there for, I was there for eight months and uh, I called one of my professors and see, it, really to be, a, to be a biologist, you need a master's degree. In fact, it's a minimum requirement right now in our state. And uh, so I called one of my favorite professors and I, I begged to come back to graduate school and uh, he said he didn't have any projects. And I said, well, I'll, you know, I'll pay my own way if we can come up with something I can do at the deer pens. And uh, so I uh, eased back into graduate school. Um, certainly not the best grades, but um, I was going to do a small little project. And then uh, we had this nice big state funded project up at Red Top Mountain State Park uh, with an overabundant deer population. And um the they had a, a student picked out for that and all that and then he just totally walked away from it and so i was kind of at the right place at the right time to get a, a really nice big deer project to work on for my graduate school so uh that uh put me in contact with a lot of people with the state and kind of set me up well to to get into my to my job and uh, i started off in the quail program um with the state Bob White Quail Initiative for about eight months. And um, one of the two, at that time, there were two kind of add-on deer responsibility positions to a region biologist, and one of those came open. And I didn't meet the minimum qualifications for it, but I was encouraged to apply anyway, and uh, I got it. And they uh, I've kind of been doing that ever since, and my job has kind of morphed and changed a little bit over the years. And um, as other people walk, you know, left and uh, those other projects freed up, I started taking on all of it and they finally put me into a dedicated position that was doing nothing but, um, overseeing 
um, every aspect of what we do with uh, deer and deer management in the state. And um, I've been doing that for a while and, and uh, actually making some more changes to it as well. We're starting a new program um, starting this fall. Uh, with, we hired uh, three new biologists to, to administrate that program. Nice, nice. Um, so is there like, like, is there kind of any, I guess, research that y'all are doing right now or have done recently that may be really interesting, which I guess all of it could be interesting, but. Um, yeah, yeah, we got a bunch of stuff going on. Uh, we just had a PhD student. So let, let me back up and explain how we normally uh, conduct research. We, um, graduate students are a whole heck of a lot cheaper than biologists are. So um, we work with the University of Georgia. When we have a research need, we go to the professors there and we work with them to develop a research proposal. Um, and they, they write it up and they have all the kind of the, the statistical expertise to, to test uh, whatever theory or whatever uh, question we're trying to answer. And we pay them and they hire a graduate student uh, who conducts that actual research project. And so uh, that's, that's commonly uh, how, we, how we do it. It's just a, it's a much more cost-effective way to do it. And, we don't, and then we don't have to employ statisticians and people with you know, advanced uh, modeling experience. It's just a better, better way to do it. So, um, yeah, so we got a, a student finishing up, um, a PhD student that uh, worked on developing a new method for doing camera surveys. Um, and that's, that's hot off the press. We're, we're anxious to get these, uh, this new technology uh, kind of out there on the landscape. It, um, it's an unbated methodology, so we can operate it on our wildlife management areas during the deer season without having to worry about the bait issue. Uh, and on top of that, we get rid of the bias associated with bait. So, you know, when you, when you do a traditional camera survey where you're putting out bait, depending on your age structure in bucks or your age structure in does, you can have some kind of skewed results because of the, the social dynamics of how those deer operate around the bait sites. So this is a, a much more unbiased study that we're just passively capturing these deer on pictures. So pretty, pretty neat way to, way to do it. So, um, and then we got a, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, would that be like, I, I was thinking about that as you were explaining, I guess that's what you were alluding to was basically if you do have bait out, then it's kind of like not as a natural movement, I guess. Yeah, um, you're you're introducing bias into the into the right, system. Right. So, um, I, I'll give you an example. You know, if you've got if you've been doing quality deer management for a number of years, and you've got a pretty advanced age structure in bucks, and you've been you know managing the does appropriately, and have a lower age structure in does, what you're going to find is when you're say you're trying to estimate your buck to doe ratio it's going to be skewed towards bucks artificially because that mature age structure they're going to tend to dominate those those bait sites over the does um right and conversely you know if you've got an area where um 
you don't necessarily manage for older bucks, but but you you backed off the doe harvest and you managed for a higher population, um, those older does will tend to dominate the bite, bait sites over the younger bucks. So, um, and on top of that, it uh, doe earlier in the season does are are less likely to bring their fawns with them to uh, to bait sites. And so that uh, kind of influences our one of our most important parameters that we look at these days, the fawn recruitment rate. So um, having a, a good unbiased estimate of the ratio of fawns to does is really, really important for, for managing deer. Hmm. You know, that's, I, I, I'm actually kind of relieved that you say that. I did not, I didn't know that um, does wouldn't, generally bring fawns with them early in the season or summertime, I guess, like that. Cause, um, there's been times where, you know, you check in your camera, especially right now, you know, people are out there checking their cameras and stuff and they're wondering, you know, where are all my phones at? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a, re- a little bit of a relief, I guess. <clears throat> yeah. We, we don't really start. I don't put any stock in the, in the number that you get until, until um, if you're using a beta camera survey until probably late October, um, it, it's just, it, it's biased low. And it's just because not that some does will bring them there, but not all of them and not at the, and not at the rate at which they're actually existing in the population. Right. Right. Um, so we got, I, I guess we got into a little, talk there about that but i mean is is, i guess you were going to say if there was anything else y'all are working on or yeah we uh we've got a project going on in north georgia um in the blue ridge mountains and i'm not sure you know if you don't if you don't hunt up there you may not be aware but you know that deer population has has really crashed over the last probably 20 years or so um so we've got a couple of actually three different students working on that. So one of the biggest projects we've ever worked on, um, trying to, uh, you know, really nail down what's going on up there. I mean, we've certainly got our suspicions that, you know, we uh, bear populations have increased, coyote populations have increased, the habitat has declined precipitously with a lack of timber harvest or even or any timber management um, on the national forest. So. It's, um, you know, we, we, we don't know how all of that works together. We know, we know predators are certainly getting them, but it's not, it's not just as simple as, as well. Um, you have too many predators, you need to reduce the predators. It's, you know, what, there's probably a lot of predation as a function of habitat going on. Uh, like lack of adequate fawning cover could be, can make the impact of the predators that much more. So uh, we're trying to see what we can, you know, what we can learn from that and, and, and then see what we can do within the current constraints of habitat management up there. So that's a, that's probably our area of, of dire need right now. And we've also taken some regulatory steps, something new that the hunters are going to find up there is that um, we have, shut down the doe harvest completely on the Chattahoochee National Forest. Uh, on, on the WMAs, uh, even during archery season, the archery season is buck only up there this year. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I would have 
I would have suspected there would be pretty adequate phone cover in, uh, I guess you're, you're referring to like North Georgia mountains, right? Yeah. So what happens is, um, they, timber harvest is really uh, almost shut down since, um, I'd started, I don't know, 30 years ago. And over time, you know, the, the forest closes canopy. And when you get a closed canopy forest, it shades out much of the ground cover. That's not only deer food, but cover escape cover for fawns. So, um, it just, it leaves, a, uh, it's too open underneath that closed canopy and there's not, uh, a good mixture of early successional habitat and, uh, varying height of plant structures that can, uh, help disrupt scent patterns that, uh, that predators use to, to, to locate things like fawns. So, um, it, it's not, uh, you know, a sea of closed canopy forest with no, with no holes in that canopy is not, is not a good habitat for deer at all. Right. Yeah, I would, uh, yeah, I was, I'm, that's kind of a little bit shocking to me. I thought that it would be, which I know, I mean, I guess in those mountains, you got some big timber and, uh, but I would figure like the, the, I guess it's the south side or whatever, you know, the side of those mountains that gets the sunlight, you know, first. Mm -hmm. I figure, you know, there'd be several of those spots like that that would have pretty thick cover, but I guess not. No, there's, uh, you see a lot of shrubby cover like uh, mountain laurel and rhododendron, and it looks thick, and you certainly don't want to try to walk through it. If you get down on the eye level of a predator, what you'll see right. is it, it is clean, nearly bare ground underneath that. And, you know, scent can travel easily and uh, all, all, all through that. And it's just, it's just too, there's just not enough adequate cover for, for fawns to hide in. Uh, I'm, I mean, and I'm, you know, that's what we think is going on. That's why we're doing the research mm -hmm. to, to really learn hopefully where, you know, the few successful fawns that are, that are raised, where, where are they being born? Is there, um, are there micro habitats within that, that, you know, the older does find the select fawning sites and, and are able to, to successfully rear their fawns and other, other less experienced does are getting the marginal sites and they're not surviving. We just don't know. That's um, something we're trying to tease apart with the research. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, all right, so well, I guess we'll throw in a we'll throw in a listener question right here because I think it. I mean, it kind of relates a little bit, but the main reason why is because we're talking about the you know the North Georgia mountains, and so it, it made me think of this question. All right, this is from David Terry, and he asks, "Have you seen a difference in track sizes in deer and lower swamp ground terrain versus?" hilly ridge country um said he was hunting in kentucky last year and noticed that couldn't find a big solid a solid big buck track in the bluff country but they were plentiful in the river, river bottoms and then he goes on and says um just wondering maybe do their hooves you know genetically get smaller or uh, to help with traveling like the hill country and stuff like that 
You know, I'm not aware of any research that anybody's specifically done, and I don't think there's going to be any genetic differences. But what I do suspect is going on is that in softer ground, more of the hoof of an individual deer is going to make contact. You know, you sink in and those toes are going to kind of splay apart a little bit versus hard packed ground. Less of the hoof is is actually going to make an imprint. It's not going to sink down as far and so less it's going to appear to be a little bit smaller track. So that would be my guess as to what's going on. And I, I doubt that there's really any differences um, in, in those things. It takes, um, you know, it takes a very, very long time for, um, you know, thousands of years for evolution to kind of uh, right. make those type of separations. And I think, between swamps and uplands there's so much interbreeding anyway because those deer are using the same both of those areas not they're not exclusive to those areas Uh, i just wouldn't think there would be any difference and then you couple that with the fact that we uh brought deer from all over the country and and restocked the southeast with them and so we've got this you know, tremendous genetic diversity already built into the deer. I doubt, I doubt that you'd see any genetic difference in that. Yeah. Um, which I'm glad you said that, that actually will be kind of like our, I guess this, this is going to be like the, the, the topic that's going to basically shape the whole podcast. Um, because I think it has a lot to do with pretty much everything we're going to talk about. Um, and you were talking about, you know, the repopulation in Georgia. Uh, so kind of explain that and how all that went about. Yeah, so um, European settlement in, in our country, when they came here, uh, wildlife was so abundant, uh, they thought it could never be depleted. And so to get deer-specific, um, there was market hunting of deer. Uh, there were annually hundreds of thousands of pounds of deer hides that were shipped back to Europe from the Southeast. Uh, so they were, uh, they were hunted for profit, sold to market. Um, and then you couple that with dramatic habitat destruction. Um, we, uh, Europeans cleared our mixed forest. We had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of pine savanna, which is kind of an open, open habitat forest type setting um, and denuded the landscape of all tree cover for the purpose of cotton farming. So there was a lot of habitat destruction in that. So I mentioned in North Georgia, we got a lack of early successional habitat. Well, that was the other extreme. There was nothing but that early successional habitat and no forested cover. And too much of either is uh, is not good for deer. Deer thrive on that edge. They're an edge species. So our deer populations in the southeast were uh, just plummeted. And there were only, you know, there were a handful of areas, mainly large private land holdings that maintain populations for, um, for them, themselves. So they maintain that hunting opportunity. And uh, around... Uh, uh, the the time people like Teddy Roosevelt came along in the the turn of the twentieth century, 
um, the mindset changed and the birth of the North American model of wildlife conservation was, was, was happening at that time. And the concept there was that wildlife are not owned by any one individual, including the landowner, they're owned collectively by the people of a state. And decisions on wildlife management are to be science-based and, uh, and also incorporate the desires of the public who own them. So uh, that led to change uh, there. We started having a few um, private stockings around the state, bringing in deer from other areas. And in 1937, along came the Pittman-Robertson Act uh, or the Wildlife Restoration Act. And that injected a ton of money into the system. It was a um, an excise tax levied at the manufacturer's level on firearms and ammunition to be used collectively with hunting license sales. And that really put restocking efforts in top gear. It really put some money into the system uh, to restore wildlife populations. And at that point, we, between... The 1930s and around 1975, uh, the bulk, a lot of what we were doing was was restoring uh, deer and turkey populations in the states uh, all over the southeast. So that's um, that's kind of where we, you know, the long story of of where we've come from and where we're at now. And obviously, it was very successful that that. Re- restocking effort that we did so you know it's hunters that that pay that hunters and shooters that pay that excise tax and uh and hunters that buy those hunting licenses that funded all of that um and continue to do do so today that's still the model that we work under and how our agency is funded Mm, yeah that's great um and that's and, and that's one thing you know i always tell people you know the way that I got into hunting, like my dad, he didn't like, he's got three boys and he's got a daughter too, but he didn't like, we didn't grow up with him teaching us how to hunt because when he was our age, you know, when he was 10 and, you know, into his teenage years, he didn't, he didn't hunt deer because there really wasn't a, huge abundance of deer back then when he was a kid and uh, it just was and and then i mean it just makes sense because his his dad my grandfather he didn't teach him to deer hunt because he definitely didn't hunt when he was a kid because uh, you're i mean that's what you know you're talking 70 80 years ago when my granddad was a kid so yeah well um, you know small game was king king right. back then because that that sea of you know, cotton farming all over the state with uh, hedgerows separating fields and all that early successional habitat was actually excellent for rabbits and quail. And Mm -hmm. so they flourished under that and were actually had higher populations during that time period than they would have historically prior to European settlement. So now, you know, the habitat has switched back to something more favorable to deer and turkeys and as a result, you know, our quail and rabbit populations have declined to what, you know, to let much less than what they were at that time. Yeah. Um, and I, that's one thing I remember, you know, my, my daddy always talked about, you know, he's like, no, we never did, 
we never did go out and hunt deer, you know, because it was too hard to find them. But he said we we'd hunt rabbits and well everything else. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but uh, so, and I don't I don't know exactly. I've kind of talked about it a little bit, but when they repopulated deer in Georgia, like where did they where did they bring the deer in from? Okay, so. Our three primary stocking sources in order of number of deer are Georgia, uh, Texas, and Wisconsin. That's where the bulk of our deer came from within the state. So there were still, like I said, there were some relic populations. Um, Berry College, there were uh, our barrier islands, which most of which were, or several of which were privately owned um, for a lot of years and maintained uh, deer populations, Jekyll, Blackbeard. Um, these islands that, you know, served as stocking sources. So the, the, the largest number of deer came from our own trapping efforts within the state. Uh, we did get a bunch of deer from the King Ranch in Texas, and um, we stocked those uh, in, mainly in North Georgia. And it's pretty interesting to see because when you get up in those mountains, there's a December rut up there, which corresponds to the same time period of rut for uh, for that portion of south uh, southeast Texas, um, and we put them in North Georgia because during that time they were battling the screwworm screw fly in both livestock and deer, and they felt like uh, they wouldn't be infecting our population. Or uh, that screwworm fly was a very warm weather kind of subtropical. Uh, species and and it was better to stock them up there and then uh, for a period of time we got a number of deer from uh, a facility in Wisconsin Um, and in fact a number of states did it was actually a a high fence preserve and uh, we they all came down here as fawns they they traveled better and uh, during some periods it was actually cheaper for us to purchase deer from that facility instead of going out and trapping and moving them ourselves so we got a few from there um and interestingly 50 years 50 60 years ago when we were getting those deer we were we were bringing back a particular bacteria that came along and this is why we discourage any movement of live deer these days uh that causes cranial abscess in deer that we still have today and it's only found in the areas where we stocked Wisconsin deer. And uh, we actually mm. did a research project and, tra- and tied it back to that actual facility, um, that, that particular species of bacteria. So some bucks in some areas of our state will get an, in- they get a, they get an infection that starts as a small cut or something at the base of the antler from fighting or rubbing trees and, sometimes that bacteria can actually eat through the bone and the skull and get into the brain and kill the deer. Hmm. That was a That's... little present we got from Wisconsin bringing the deer in. You know, I don't, it, I don't know if that may be um, related to an encounter that I had, um, which, I mean, I'm down here. I'm basically Midwest Georgia. Um uh, mm-hmm. Right above Columbus, right on the Alabama line, pretty much. Um, it's been several years ago. I don't know, maybe three or four years ago. And my brother and I were uh, walking 
the property scouting and stuff and um we're walking along the creek and we had had pictures of this buck he was a nice deer he was probably a two or three year old buck you know had potential and we uh we saw him dead in the creek and uh we we you know we looked at him and tried to get him out of the creek he, i mean he hadn't been dead long you know he'd been laying there maybe not even a day and uh but we could not figure out at all like we couldn't figure out what his cause of death was um there was there didn't appear to be anything wrong with him we didn't find any kind of we didn't find a bullet hole or any kind of nicks or anything on him so um, we just weren't sure with uh, yeah. how he how he died well i can i can give you a pretty darn good guess um if it was late summer early fall i could almost guarantee you that that's a disease called hemorrhagic disease because that is telltale sign. Um, it's, uh, it's a common disease that we have. It usually doesn't kill a lot of deer because it happens so frequently that we have good herd immunity to it. But when you find a deer dead in water in that time period, that's, it's almost a sure sign of hemorrhagic disease. It's kind of, mm -hmm. it affects deer much like Ebola affects humans. It causes mm -hmm. them to hemorrhage internally and at every blood vessel junction that starts to, it starts to rupture and they bleed out internally. It's, it's a pretty devastating disease to the individual. And, um, but luckily we don't lose a lot of deer to it and it's not as impactful as it is in some Northern States where it happens infrequently and they don't have herd immunity. Some places up there, I've, there would be local populations of deer that, 25 to 50 percent of the deer will die in in a short window of time hmm, that's interesting well i guess i'll just go with that answer then because that that does make the most sense mm -hmm. <laughs> i've always wondered what was wrong with him I, we never could figure it out well and um, you know I'd, anytime you run across a situation like that we we want to get our hands on those deer and we want to get them into the lab and test them and see what's going yeah. on because we, we we like to keep pretty close tabs so i'd recommend anybody that's listening whenever you find a sick or dead deer give us a call and and let's see if we can figure out what's going on with it yeah and uh, how can they how can they what what do they need to do to get in contact with y'all they can call our um <laughs> if you get a copy of the hunting regulations guide or go to our website what they're looking for is th their local game management office okay so we've got all our con we got seven different regions in the state so whatever county it's in they want to call the region game management office and talk to one of the biologists about um about having having them uh or you know a lot of times we're gonna you know we're gonna question and see what's going what we think might be going on with the deer and how long it's been there and whether it's usable or not um you know if it's if it's pretty decayed there's not a lot we can do uh, in the lab, but if it's, you know, a couple of days old or less and it's not too hot, then, then we can usually either one, get some tissue samples for it or two, even get the whole carcass of the deer and take it into the lab. Nice. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, if anybody find a dead deer, then that'd be a great idea to do that. Um, okay. We're going to pause just real quick. Let you guys know about on X hunt maps. Um, Guys, if y'all don't have Onyx and you need a map or any kind of mapping system to try and help you 
determine your deer or set up your stand locations, figure out your property, Onyx is the app to get. They're the number one mapping system right now and they are legit. Um, I'll tell you the one thing that I really, really like about Onyx is the fact that you can look at the map and it tells you like all the names of the property owners. You can put the, the filter, the terrain filter on top of that. So you can have a hybrid map with a topo overlay and it's, it really, really helps when you're trying to figure out a piece of property. So you're trying to move in on a turkey or you're trying to figure out how you're gonna set your stands up for deer movement. It really lets you look at the terrain and the cover at the same time. Um, and then the, the other great thing about it, especially for public land, it adds filters on there that allow you to see all the hunting that's accessible to you for public land. So it's just a really great app, man. I mean, it's got everything. They, they knocked it out of the park when they come up with this and it's, uh, that's just a great idea. I can't say enough about it, but if you guys don't have it, Go check it out on X Hunt Maps. So I guess with all that said, and we we're talking about you know the repopulation of deer in the state, um, what is what is the state of the herd right now in Georgia? Aside from the mountains, um, I think we're we're in as good a place as we've been in my whole career. Um, when I started in the mid two thousands, we were we had just finally passed our, our population peak, but we were still in a lot of areas of the state uh, had an overabundant population of deer. We had too many. Um, during that same time, uh, we were seeing our fawn recruitment rate starting to decline as um, what we almost assuredly believe is the impact of coyotes in the northern part of the state They've been more established in the southern part of the state for, for quite some time. So we saw those recruitment rates starting to decline. And with high hunter harvest, the hunter harvest that was really designed to reduce the population, the population started declining. And it actually went a little far, uh, a little further past where we wanted it to go. It dropped kind of below a, a, an acceptable level, both biologically and uh, from the public standpoint. And um, so then we started backing off on the doe days in the northern part of the state and, uh, and, and got the population back up. And uh, the, last, the last few years, it's been pretty stable and at a, a, a very healthy level. Now, that's not going to apply to every single property. There are certainly, certainly properties that are, that are overhunted and, or have been in the past and, and the deer population is too low. And we still have overabundance issues where we have a lack of hunting. So, uh, but on average, um, we've got uh, about as healthy of a population as we could have and good huntable numbers within carrying capacity. And um, it's, it's doing quite well right now. Right, good deal. Uh, do you, is there any way for you to like kind of have a number of the population or a guesstimate, I guess? <laughs> yeah, guesstimate. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we run it. We run a population model. It's called a reconstruction model. Um, I don't like to give the number, uh, but uh, 
it's you know i've got to people people want to know they want to know the number of deer because but but it never aligns with what people think or believe uh our current estimate is about 1.2 million now the problem with the way we do this model is that that estimate is three or four years old because it's Mm -hmm. not accurate until it's three or four years old and so what uh what people find hard to understand is that um you know, we don't need we don't need to count deer or census deer to manage them. We've right. always managed wildlife populations based on trends and pop and certain population parameters. So uh, we, we look at at what the trends and harvest have done, the percentage of the harvest and number of the harvest that makes up the females, that fawn recruitment rate that I talked about. So we know in a given year if that fawn recruitment rate drops and we maintain the same level of harvest that we've had in the past, we can expect that population to decline. And conversely, if that fawn recruitment rate goes up uh, we can, uh, and harvest stays the same, we can expect the population to increase. So uh, I don't necessarily use that population estimate as, a, as, as part of my management. It's more you know, something that the public wants to see that, you know, how many, how many deer we have in the state, but it's, whenever you see that number, you can always guess or understand that it's at least three or four years old because what it does is we, you know, we get the total harvest of deer and you got this percentage that's three and a half and this percentage that's two and a half and, and the model goes back and, and, for a three and a half year old deer, it goes back three and a half years and plugs them into the population. And over time, once you've killed that entire, uh, you know, all those deer in an age class have, have been killed and, and it's that many years past, then the model can fully account for all of them. So um, it does give a current year estimate, but it it wildly changes on an annual basis to the point that I don't even bother using it. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, plus two, like you said, I mean, the population is going to be different, you know, depending on property too. So, you know, you can't, I mean, it's kind of a, I guess it's just one of those things. It's like, it's just cool to know. So, um, yeah, yeah. And that's why we do it because the, the media asked for it, the public asked for it. Um, but it's not something that's, that's necessarily important. I mean, I think what the only beneficial thing that comes from that model is when you take those estimates over a, say, 30 year period and you can show what that population, the trend in that population, where it, where it increased, where it decreased. That's the, the only real valuable part of it is where, where you see that, um, that trend over time. Um, it, it, it just gives it a good visual on what the deer population has done across the state. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Now we'll, we'll kind of change over and start talking about, uh, the root, because uh, I think this is like the main question everybody wants to know. Um, before we talk about that, though, I'll hit I'll hit this one question from a listener because it's actually not about the root. Um, all right, here we go. Justin Duncan, he says, "I'm from Mississippi, but my question is, do we not burn enough on private land? If not, 
what are some alternatives can we do to, that we can do to offset this uh, bush hogging food plots, plowing land, etc., or letting natural letting nature grow it back on its own. Um, and he says some landowners, you know, won't let you burn, but uh, <laughs> he said in my case, I'm too nervous to burn. Uh, so. I guess what he said, what he means is, you know, if you can't burn, what are some things you can do? Yeah. Yeah. So to his first question, yeah, I don't think, uh, especially on private lands, I don't think, I don't think we get enough burning done um, or enough burning at the right time of year. So yeah, it's, it's a tough thing. Um, you know, as we get more urbanized, the smoke management becomes an issue. It's, it's a, it's a difficult thing. And then there's the liability people are concerned about there. Um, and first thing I would do is, is reach out to, to his state's forestry commission. I know here in Georgia, uh, well, you can actually get the forestry commission to assist you with the burning. And, uh, there are also, uh, private insured, um, individuals that are trained to, uh, either, uh, either can completely conduct the prescribed fire or, uh, assist you with it. So there, there's some options out there if you're just not comfortable doing it by yourself. So, um, so aside from that, let's, let's say it's just, it's just totally off the table. Um, yeah, there's, there are some things you can do it. Um, um, let's say for instance, you're in the Georgia Piedmont or, uh, something like that. You, you could have a real issue with, with, uh, with sweet gum. Sweet gum's a real, uh, it's a native tree species, but it can, it, it can be really invasive, uh, especially in pine stands. So, uh, and we do this on the property I hunt and manage, um, but you, you can, there's a chemical called arsenal or the amazapyr's active ingredient. You can, you can spray it and it's actually soil active. So it'll kill through both the leaves and the soil. Um, and, uh, it, it'll, it'll actually kill the sweet gum better than a cool season fire or wintertime burn will. And then uh, that, that can make way and, and remove some shading for our more desirable species to grow. Um, if you've got space in between rows, you can do some light disking. Uh, so what the fire does is it gets soil disturbance. Um, and disking can kind of do the same thing. It stimulates uh, good native seeds that are in the seed bank, provided it's done at the right time of year, to, to grow. So... Um, that's uh that's some of the things you can do to to mimic some of that soil disturbance but um if you can burn it's uh burning is one of the cheapest and easiest habitat management actions you can take um yeah i agree actually the most probably the most natural too it is it is um and you know what's interesting and you'll probably Here's some of this. We talked about Deer University and Bronson Strickland and Steve Damaris earlier. Well, you know, they've actually got some work going on looking at burning in the summer, like in the middle of summer, when historically uh, lightning strike fire, wildfires would have occurred naturally that really shaped the ecosystem in the southeast. That's when the bulk of the wildfires would have occurred. That doesn't really happen much anymore because... We manage fuel loads in wintertime burning, and we um, we uh, um, we suppress a lot of fire with uh, you know uh, suppress a lot of wildfire with our um, so that it doesn't impact our homes and that sort of thing. But um, 
actually it it helps what they're looking at right now is to see uh, how that helps deer forage in the late summer, which is actually a stress period for deer. And the preliminary work that I've seen shows it to be, you know, pretty successful at, at bridging that, uh, that nutritional gap. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a lot of great info there. Um, and that's what I was going to say. Um, just like you said, uh, Justin, if you want, I mean, I would go check out, you know, uh, MSU deer lab, uh, deer university podcast, um, Bronson Strickland and those guys, they do a lot of great research in, uh, in Mississippi. So, um, that'll be a really good outlet for you to go check out. Um, let's get into the rut. And this is kind of why, cause this is my belief. I'm, that's why I kind of wanted to talk about the repopulation of deer in Georgia, because I think that does have something to do with, the way that our rut is in Georgia. Um, so I guess have y'all like, have y'all come up with a, like a, I guess a general time for when the rut is in Georgia? Yeah, we've actually got a map that we developed, uh, that's science-based, uh, that shows the, uh, let me see if I can figure out how to tell people to get to it. Um, I'm just doing a Google search for, uh, I just did Georgia rut and it was a, it's the top thing that comes up. Um, but yeah, we did a county by county map and there, there's a couple of different things going on with the rut. Um, some of it is genetically influenced and had probably has something to do with our restocking. Um, and some of it is, is kind of natural and, and in the sense that the further South that you get, um, deer don't necessarily need to breed in, in such a tight window as they do up north. And, you know, when you look at harsh winters that our northern states have and you have winter mortality of deer, like, say, fawns that were born too late, well, that shaped those genetics over, over thousands of years. And so when you get north of Tennessee, most everything uh, from there all the way up through Canada is going to be a November rut. Um, and that's the ideal month to, to drop those fawns and, and, uh, in, in May and June and give them time to be able to survive the winter. But in warmer climates, uh, it's just not, you don't have a, a, uh, uh, an influence there. And so it's, it's not, it doesn't have to be as tight and succinct, um, and oftentimes what you'll see is, is the rut in the south might be influenced more by, uh, say, flooding activity that we see in southwest Georgia uh, along the lower Chattahoochee River. Uh, it's the same way in southern Alabama and um, in northern Florida there. And we see it a lot in the Florida Everglades that fawns are really timed more to there's a much later rut and they're dropped later after the the summer thunderstorms and flooding events that we have in in the in in late spring with late spring rains so um when you get down in the everglades of florida you'll actually see there's one population the the rut starts in late july if you can believe that yeah so yeah and it's all tied to those those flooding events yeah so not only i mean i think I think everybody is pretty well aware that 
the main, I guess, factor that determines when the breeding season is is daylight hours. Um, is, is that true? Yeah. So, um, well, here's the thing. So, genetics code what when that when that peak's going to be. So, our peak in Georgia ranges ranges from mid October to uh, to late December, depending on where you are. So that those time periods are genetically coded in those deer in those locations. But now what triggers it to start is the photo period or the day length associated with that time period. So uh, that's right. how they know their brain and body knows when to, when, when to trigger those hormonal changes that start the rut. So it's that change in photo period um, that, that is that, the actual trigger. But the timing, the you know, the, whether it's October, you know, October 15th or whether it's December 15th, that's genetically coded. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was, you know, getting at was basically that's kind of what triggers it. But then you also have to factor in weather and uh, and that includes, you know, temperature, rain and all that stuff. It all kind of factors into when well, it is. Well, that. Well, not necessarily that, that, that impacts behavior and what we see and what we, we call the rut, but actual, um, the actual breeding is not, um, and, and when the, when the, when those fawns are born or, or the timing of conception is not really impacted at all by, by weather events or anything like that. So it, it just, yeah, it's, it's more the impacts on movement and, uh, things like that. So, but if you, if you collect fetal data from a deer population, what you'll find is you don't see any, any major shifts in, in those, in those peak windows, um, related to you know, anything that usually doesn't change. It's, it's going to be the same either way. Yeah. Um, all right, here's another, uh, listener question um and you pretty much answered it already and i mean i had a feeling that that's what the answer was and he says uh why is the georgia root so mild compared to other states or you know why are bucks not as aggressive as they are in other states and i think that what you said you know because they don't have to do it in such a short window because of the seasons and the way that it's not as intense with the season and they don't have to do it in such a short time. I guess that would be yeah, kind of the yeah. answer. That's exactly right. Um, it, it has to do with the, the number of does that come into heat. So let's say um, you, you plot it all in a, in a, in a, in a bar graph, uh, the, the day, uh, let's say you, you got a hundred does that you, that you sampled and you plot, you know, every day that each one of those does came into heat and, and was bred and conceived a fawn. What you'll find is from the first one bred to the last one bred is about a month to a month and a half spread in Georgia. Um, and overabundant populations where you got an excess of those, it could be two months. Um, but you'll have this peak in the middle, like a bell curve, and that's where, say, maybe 30 or 40 percent are bred in a, in, in a one-week window. And that's our peak rut. 
Now you get up in some of these northern states, it might be, I don't know, 60 or 70 percent of the does that are bred in that one week period. And that's why you see that level of intensity in the rut in those northern states. And it's it, it really is just a climate driven thing that has shaped genetics in, in the south. And you get uh, species of deer that um, that inhabit uh, Central and South America and whitetails that inhabit those same ranges. What you'll find is there there may not even be, you know, in, in equatorial areas, there may not even be a defined breeding period at all if there's no. Um, that there's no influence of flooding or something like that. So um, it's all it's all really climate driven. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, that's exactly the reason. Um, now you were talking about the uh, the map. Uh, now, do you have like uh, like the rut map? Mm-hmm. Um, now, is there like certain? I guess it's. I think I've seen it. It's like it's two or three. I guess regions of the state that y'all have broken up and I guess applied dates to somewhat, I guess, or? Well, so Georgia Outdoor News developed a map that was based on uh, fetal aging data that we collected that they then have adjusted uh, for years for hunter reports. And then um, we went back and developed a map a few years ago. We had a graduate student come up with this idea and uh, we based our map off of peaks and deer vehicle collisions, which makes perfect sense. Um, you'll see that what, you know, when that, when that chasing behavior really hits a peak, you'll see a lot more deer vehicle collisions in an area. So we broke mm-hmm. up, you know, um, I was either five or 10 years of deer vehicle collision data throughout the state and, and identified those peaks in every single county in the state. And then we also verified that with, we, we had some other research going on where we had deer with GPS collars and we, we checked those peaks and deer vehicle collisions in those same exact counties where we had those radio collared deer. And we could obviously see with the GPS data when they hit the peak rut because of the movement. So, um, we were able to really um, validate that as a method for doing it. So that's how our, um, where the data came from that developed that map. And uh, by and large, most of the feedback that I've heard from it is people find it to be pretty accurate for the area that they hunt. Yeah. And I've noticed like um, in my area, at least I think, and and I guess it's just like anything else, you know, kind of the stuff we've been talking about, like population and all the other stuff. I mean, it. I think it can be different, like even in the same county. Um, I know I've noticed the county that I hunt in, um, kind of like the south end of the county. Mm-hmm. It seems like the rut, the rut kind of hits, you know, around basically everywhere else, like, you know, first, second week of November. Um, but then I've hunted properties in the same County, uh, where it seemed like the rut hit like first week of December. Yeah, that can absolutely be the case. Um, you know, for the purposes of developing a map like that, we use, you know, municipal boundaries like County line, but I mean, the reality of the landscape is, you know, it's, it doesn't, you know, deer don't know what that county line is. Their genetics don't know what that county line is. So, you know, within those, if you're, uh, you know, there's going to be a, 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 
a gradient. So you could imagine, like, say, if you're looking at our map, the the greener the county, the earlier the date, the more purple the county, the later the date. And so if you're in a green county butted up to a purple county, if you're on the south edge of the green county or the north edge of the purple county, you could, you could expect your rut to probably be somewhere between those two dates. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this is just a thought, but it, I mean, that can also, I guess one reason for that would be maybe, like you said, some of the, some of it is determined by genetics from, you know, maybe where they got, repopulated from Mm -hmm. but i mean that could be determined because you may have one deer it may have gotten you know dropped off in this county now 30 years later descendants of that deer are in three counties down i mean yep um, so and that's what i was going to say too like have y'all done any kind of research on how like if deer like i don't guess really migrate but like if they like move or like they become like a transient to an area or something like that? Well, yeah, so not necessarily, but, but the thing is, you, you're, if you have an area that was completely devoid of deer and you, you do a, a, a single stocking event with deer from only one area, um, you're, it, those deer, as they, as they, breed and reproduce over over decades they're going to radiate out from that original stocking location and so those deer are going to have a lot of their most of their genetics are going to be related to that original stocking source until where that that population radiated out and started interbreeding with another source say a uh, an existing population or something like that so yeah it's gonna it's gonna radiate out now a lot of it's really messy when you get in and look at our stocking records because you know you'll see well we dumped 10 wisconsin deer and 30 georgia deer and a couple of deer from virginia all in this one county at different years and so it's not they're just going to be you know a big mixture of all the deer from, yeah. from, from that stocking source. So it just, it just really depends on, on how the stocking was done. And if it was uh, purely deer from only one stocking source and that area was completely devoid of deer, or if it just had a very, very low deer population and there were some, there were still, still some native deer running around. So it's, uh, I've tried to look at it and, and draw some, some clear conclusions from it. And, and point to, yeah, the stocking source made this difference in this population, but it's, it's really too muddy to, to tease apart. Yeah. Well, I mean, it also has a lot to do with like, you know, when, like, cause I've heard, um, we've referenced them once or twice already in this episode, um, with, uh, Bronson Strickland at, with Deer University, I mean, they talk about how, um, I guess how crucial it is for a doe to have a phone, like what all goes into the, the genetics of it. Um, and basically like when a doe has a phone, 
it takes a lot of factors into consideration for when that fawn needs to be born, I guess. Uh-huh. So it, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty deep rabbit hole if you, if you wanted <laughs> to go get into it, but yeah. Um, and you know, some of this is not necessarily well studied because it takes a lot of money to study it. And you have to weigh the benefits of the information that you get. And if the benefit is, oh, it's a cool piece of information for us to know, but it doesn't serve any management purpose, then, Mm -hmm. you know, we're not going to spend money on it. It just wouldn't make, it wouldn't make good sense to, to waste sportsman's dollars on something that's just a cool fact. Yeah. So, um, we're kind of getting that. I, I think we're kind of we're kind of running pretty good here. We're we're getting a little bit past time, but uh, we'll start kind of wrapping it up. But I've got one thing I wanted to ask was um, I've always kind of wondered this, and I've talked to talking to people on this podcast and talked to a lot of people from the Midwest and a lot of people from the South, and uh, I always have a fascination of like trying to find the difference between Midwest hunting Midwest deer and hunting deer in the South and how it's different. But, um, I would say like here in Georgia, like we, I think we have a really good deer state and I think we've got really big deer, probably not quite as much as in the Midwest, but, um, which I think the biggest reason the Midwest has the biggest deer is because they have the most food. But in your opinion, what would, what do you think if, if it is lacking anything, what do you think our state is lacking for deer? Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've heard all, you know, all the years that, uh, people say, well, if we just had a one week season, like so-and-so does, or this state does, then we'd have deer just like that. And that's just not the case. When you look at, when you look at um, age structure, if you compare the age structure of deer harvest in the upper Midwest, and a good place to look for this is QDMA's whitetail report, you will find that the Southeast is actually better at quality deer management than the, than the upper Midwestern states. Uh, we kill a higher percentage of three-and-a-half-year-old and older bucks than most of those states do. Um, not that they don't still kill some mature deer in those states, but we kill a higher percentage. But um, what we have is uh, it, we just have a difference in in land use in our state. Um, when you look at where we don't have near as much agriculture, um, and we we have a a uh, we our Piedmont of our state is more of a. Uh, mixed pine, hardwood, pine upland, and pasture with a little bit of agriculture and then suburban and urban development. And that is excellent deer habitat. It it grows a a high number of deer. It supports a lot of deer. It doesn't necessarily support the best quality of deer. But when you get up in those agricultural states, um, you you might say you've got a square mile of land, 640 acres. well, only maybe 80 or 100 of that might be forested. Mm-hmm. So that land is more limited by cover than it is by food. So it can't support a high 
number of deer per square mile because of that lack of lack of cover, um, that lack of forested cover. So fewer deer are living there with more food than they'll ever be able to eat. And that's what creates those conditions up there. And couple that with the fact that um, when you're hunting that 80 acre woodlot on a, you know, in 640 acres of nothing but agriculture, all of those deer at some point are having to come back to that cover. So in outward appearances, it might look like you're seeing many more deer than you would see in Georgia. But imagine if you were in Georgia and you could see most yeah. of a square mile from your right. deer stand. Um, you, it, it's, I think it's, uh, it's just, it's different habitat and different, different land use that makes the biggest, biggest difference. And on top of that, uh, genetics are, are different. Those, uh, we've got, uh, we've got great genetics in our state, but, um, you know, some of those, some of those Northern states just, just by climatic conditions, the further North you go, the larger antlers get because body sizes get bigger deer adapted for years to, you know, if you didn't pack on the resources and pack on the fat to survive the winter, you didn't make it. And so antler size came along with body size in that evolution of deer that had the ability to, to better utilize and take up those resources and convert them into body mass. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell people, all the time you know that we do have a lot of deer in this state it's just that's the reason why you don't see as many because they can hide pretty much anywhere so mm-hmm. um one more thing uh were you about to say something yeah uh, one one great example that i like to point to that shows the perfect <sighs> the perfect habitat to grow and recipe to grow the biggest deer you can is go on Google Earth and look at Buffalo County, Wisconsin, and get in the south edge of that county. That that county has produced more Boone and Crockett bucks than any other county in the United States or Canada. And when you zoom in on that, what you will see is just the most perfect interspersion of forested cover and agricultural habitat that you could imagine and that's why that area has produced those deer. That that's that's the best visual explanation that I can get to explain to people how land use impacts um, antler quality in deer. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, because what you're explaining there it creates a lot of edge, and mm-hmm. that's what deer love. And then cover you got the cover to go along with it. So, um, one more thing we were. You, and we were kind of touching on it about talking about quality of deer in the state and stuff like that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of aware that, uh, I don't think many biologists really like the term culling deer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, I have the belief that, you know, you don't call like, you can't control genetics. Nope. Um, so, and, and I, I, I hate that term so much when people say, you know, get him, kill him, get him out of the herd. You don't want those genetics going around. Um, what are your thoughts on that? It doesn't matter one way or the other. Uh, doesn't amount to a hill of beans, whether or not you kill that deer. 
um, that study that they that they are wrapping up right now in South Texas, uh, where they really really did a controlled look at how culling can uh, potentially influence genetics, it does not. It's it is the nail is in the coffin on that. You, you what you do with your trigger pool does not influence the genetic pool in the deer population. Now, what is an appropriate thing to do is called selective harvest. And so let's say you've got a goal of whatever you, you only want your goal on your property is to shoot deer that score 120 inches or better. Um, you're going to have deer that don't, that don't meet that. And selective harvest is, recognizing when you have a mature deer, a mature buck, four and a half year old, year old or older, and that doesn't meet your antler criteria and selective harvest is removing that mouth from the landscape to free up resources for other deer that are maybe have better, better potential of growing larger antlers, if that's your goal. So that's the appropriate reason to do it. Um, to, to free up those resources, free up social space uh, for that deer population. And in that, in that sense, as long as you understand that you're not influencing genetics, there's nothing wrong with, uh, with doing that. I mean, really, the best way to manage deer, if you're interested in, in growing, growing big mature deer, is to limit your harvest to only mature deer. And it, it shouldn't matter what their, what their antlers are. If it's, if your goal is, is mature deer that are four and a half years old or older, once they've hit that age, now provided you have to know how to age them on the hoof, but once they've hit that age, then it shouldn't matter what's on their head. It's time, you know, it's time to remove that deer from the population. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, I would even say, you know, uh, actually here's another, here's another good, uh, question, um, I was going I was on Twitter Twitter the other day and uh, uh, a friend of ours Bradley Collins he put a question on Twitter and it was about uh, people shooting you know bigger deer you know people get a lot of uh, I don't have the question in front of me so I'm kind of rambling but <laughs> um, <laughs> he was saying people you know you get a hard time if you shoot a smaller buck but you know, most of the time people don't give you a hard time if you shoot a smaller doe. Um, and, uh, my belief is that, you know, if, if you are going to shoot does and you're worried about, you know, your, your herd, I would say it's probably better to shoot younger does, um, and leave those, you know, the middle aged, you know, the two and three and four year old does there to have your phones. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, so you, um, your, your older does are, are certainly the most experienced and they're, they're going to be the most successful if you're concerned about the population dipping down. Now, the only thing you got to be careful of is that you don't wipe out an entire cohort, uh, and, and leave those older does with nothing to replace them. So, um, it, 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 depends on the scale of, of what you're doing. So if you only shoot year and a half old does, but you shoot every single one of them, 
right. eventually you're going to run into a problem with that wiped out that wiped out cohort and nothing to replace those older does as they as they die. So, uh, but yeah, that's generally what I like to do, um, and couple that with the fact that a year and a half old does best taste in one. So, <laughs> yeah, yes, but, but yeah, I mean. And what I what I'd like to stress to people is, you know, quality deer management is is an excellent thing. It, it it's a scientifically based uh, method of balancing uh, a deer population with the available habitat, balancing sex ratios, and producing a more realistic historical age structure in both males and females in the population. But don't take it to the extreme and don't let it ruin the fun of hunting. Um, that's I've, I've seen too many people that take it so seriously and get so upset if somebody makes a mistake on a on a slightly younger buck or something like that, that, um, you know, it hunting's supposed to be fun. And let's let's keep it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's all about having fun at the end of the day. Um and we'll end it with this. I got one last question, and this is kind of a—I mean, I think I already we we both already know the answer to this. But uh, Jordan Brooks on Instagram asks, "Do deer or can deer remember being shot at last hunting season and know to watch out this season?" <laughs> um. Yeah. So deer deer are pretty keen to what's going on in their environment. Just like you and I are very keen to what's going on inside our home, you know, if if you walk in and uh, there's a noise that's that's not you and not your pets, you're going to notice it. And yeah, uh, they they're very perceptive of their environment. So when hunting season rolls around and gravel starts popping from vehicle tires and four wheelers going up and down the the woods and people are tromping through the leaves, putting out trail cameras. Our human activity in general just picks up tremendously in the fall. And they are uh, of course going to perceive that. Um, and so, you know, as you go through the season, uh, their behavior changes. Um, they're, they're a lot more nonchalant in the off season when they're not being shot at and there's not that human activity. And so, I don't know that it's, I can't say if they're, if it's they're, the fact that they're remembering from last year, uh, any of that, but, um, I certainly think they're reacting to that, that increase in human presence. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've used talking to several people about deer on this podcast. I've, I've said that same analogy to several folks and they've said the same thing to me, you know, uh, deer are a lot like we are um, they have a lot of tendencies just like we do i think that are relatable um because if you say you walk in your house you kind of i guess make it i guess to the equivalent of you know if somebody walks in your house with mud on their boots you're gonna know you're gonna see it and mm -hmm. i guess that would be kind of the same as you know deer smelling where you walked it's pretty much the same concept, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. But they do, they do notice. They'll, they'll notice stuff, just like we will in our own home. So, yep. Um, 
Well, Charlie, I uh, I think that's uh, I think that's a podcast right there, man. Um, I really appreciate you coming on here and talking with us today. Um, if you can, let everybody know, you know, if they need to find out any information or anything like that, let them know where they can get it. Okay. Um, one of the you can go to gohuntgeorgia.com or georgiawildlife.com to get pretty much anything you need. Uh, our hunting regulations for this upcoming year are hot off the press. Um, I got the new book sitting in front of me, and uh, there's not a person in this. There's only a piece of venison being cooked over a fire, and there's a hand holding an herb brush in that, and that hand is mine. So that mystery hand on the front cover of the hunting regulations guide, along with my my Tika rifle and my Steiner binoculars in the background, um, that's you, you know uh, you've seen a famous hand there. So, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so uh, we're we're really trying to focus on on the food aspect of hunting now. There's a there's a, a really growing interest in it. But uh, yeah, georgiawildlife.com or gohuntgeorgia.com uh, to, to find everything you need to know about hunting in Georgia. And if you don't know and you can't find it, call us and ask. We, uh, we, we never shy away from a phone call. And we always want to make sure that people know before they go and are doing the right thing and, and don't have a bad experience by getting a ticket for something that they, they weren't aware of. So um, I, I always encourage people to call us. Awesome. Well, you speaking of, you know, speaking of the food aspect of it, you know, you know, after people get their kill, you know, they're, you know, they become maybe grill masters and your last name is kill master. So that's, I was going to ask you, you know, do you, do you fill your tags every year? <laughs> I don't fill them all because, uh, number one, I can't eat 12. Um, but, uh, but I, I, I take what I need and I'm, I'm kind of the dough manager on the property that I hunt. So, uh, we go through, you know, four or five deer a year. Uh, but I, I, I got some other work, some other things in there. I've been elk hunting and, um, I got a couple of javelina from Texas in my freezer right now. And, um, uh, so yeah, four or five deer is kind of our, our staple that, that we, we strive for every year. But, um, no, I, I do a lot of cooking. I'm actually, um, uh, if you go to our, our Facebook page, that's another great way to get, get news and information on what we're doing. But, um, we're actually starting a cooking series um, that that I'm primarily doing. Um, so cooking wild game, I, I got a lot of recipes. I'm pretty passionate about it, so we're we're trying to get some of that information out there as well. Nice. Well, Charlie, man, I really appreciate you coming on here, and uh, I think people are going to like this episode right here, man. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to do it anytime. Yes, sir. 